Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Interest in genealogy has skyrocketed thanks to online resources like Ancestry.com. Oral history has an important role, too, in the journey to understand family roots, especially in African-American families. Connecticut author Jill Snyder had another treasure to lean on, love letters her parents wrote to each other in the 1930s. Snyder transcribed those letters in her book, Dear Mary, Dear Luther. They helped her research a complex family tree, but they also gave her a deeper understanding of her parents' lives in Northeast Pennsylvania and their courtship, despite living apart. Today, where we live, we talk with Snyder. Next week, the New Haven native will give a virtual talk hosted by the New Haven Museum. We'll have information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Jill Snyder joins me now on Zoom. Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Again, your book is Dear Mary, Dear Luther, A Courtship in Letters. This book won an award from the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. This is a prestigious national organization, so congratulations to you. But tell me first, when did you find these love letters? I found them after my mother passed away in 2007. They were stuffed in a plastic bag and a nightstand by her bed. And I was, I was going through her things. I saw, just found them and remembered the letters that they had written each other and hadn't thought about them in years. My mother had mentioned them from time to time. So I was a little surprised when I found them, but I knew automatically what they were. So you hadn't read them before. So did you sit down and, and to go through them that day? Or what was your reaction when they were in front of you? My reaction was... I thought they might be a little too personal to go through. And plus I was busy, uh, you know, taking care of things after my mother passed away working. And I just put them aside. And after about two years, it took uh, that long for it to dawn on me that I should do something with the letters. And then I started reading them and read a few to my brother. And we were just awed at how beautiful they were. Were they emotional reading them? <sighs> were they emotional? I'd say the entire experience was emotional. It wasn't immediately emotional in reading the letters. But as I began to recall uh, moments and dig into the family history, there, there were emotional moments. So this was young love, uh, these letters, this courtship. Uh, your your parents, again, they uh, grew up in northeast Pennsylvania. And so the time that uh, your father was writing to your mother, he had actually left for a summer job. So tell us about that. Yes, it was 1937 in the depths of the Depression. And he uh, went to work in Asbury Park, a summer resort. And from there, he, he, after the summer ended, instead of returning home, as he had promised my mother, he went to New York and uh, worked there in a hotel as a bellman. And how old were they then? 
Uh, at this point, my mother was graduating high school. She was 18 and my father was 25. And they had met about a year and a half before the letters began when my mother was still only about 16 going on 17. So there, because of that age difference, I think it took time, a little time for the friendship to heat up a bit. What surprised you about the letters? You know, I, I think back to, you know, the things we learn about our parents as we become adults, but when you're able to see the way that they communicated to each other, did it surprise you knowing your parents' personalities later on? My father's letters surprised me. My mother's personality in the letters is exactly how she was in life, as I recall her. My father was a quiet man around the house, so I was very surprised at how expressive he was. And uh, when I first started reading the letters and I called my brother who lives in Florida, I read you know, two or three of my father's letters and he agreed with me. We were, we were both quite surprised. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that he would go on to work at a hotel in New York. Uh, you have, uh, I think, uh, one of the letters in front of you where it's actually New Year's Day in 1939, and your father, Luther, has written to your mother. Could you read a portion for us? Sure. So, as I said, the letters began in 1937 when my mother was graduating high school, and they're very friendly, polite letters uh, and, and not very expressive emotionally. So this is the first letter where my father starts to reveal how he feels about my mother. So he writes, Dear Mary, Happy New Year, baby. It's now 9 a.m. New Year's Day, and I just come in from one of those wild New Year's nights, and the first and only one I could think about is you. And before I retire, I must express myself and let you know how I feel. Yes, indeed, Mary. You really do things to me. And I just love this letter. <laughs> <laughs> when you are reading uh, the book, uh, Dear Mary, Dear Luther, and, and looking through these letters, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting the, the, in the letters how they often mention the music that they're listening to and the songs that speak to them and how it makes them think about each other, which I, I thought was a really uh, lovely detail. Yes. they used music almost in a shy way to let each other know how they feel without being direct. You're hearing Jill Snyder again. Uh, she's the author of Dear Mary, Dear Luther, where they're actually love letters between her parents before they married that they wrote them uh, starting in 1937 through uh, 1941. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jill used these letters uh, not only to learn more about her parents, but also about her family's history, especially uh, growing up in Northeast Pennsylvania. In, also in these uh, letters, they talk about the events that are happening, not only in their town, uh, your mother still in Wilkes-Barre, uh, Pennsylvania, but what he is witnessing, Luther, uh, while he's working in New York City. Can you talk about how you weaved the history of what was happening at that moment with the, the letters in between the book? Yes. Um... I added, I, I call illuminations because they do reference a lot of current events and especially as you mentioned earlier, uh, songs, musicians, events that they're going to. Of course, it was the big band era and my parents loved music and loved to dance. So that was a very important part of our lives growing up with them, uh, always 
the stereo was always on, the radio was always on playing music. Um, and then uh, the, there are uh, historical events like the um, King and Queen coming to England, uh, coming to the United States from England and the uh, uh, 1939 World's Fair and the war in Europe. So I wanted people to be, I would you know, have some uh, connection to what they were talking about in the letters. And many people tell me that they feel like reading the letters is a step back in time because of those notes that I added. Mm. Uh, what was it like for your parents to grow up in Northeast Pennsylvania? Again, uh, black residents in a uh, part of the country that was very white. Uh, did you see that uh, in these letters, uh, certain details that struck you about how they were treated uh, growing up in not only in Wilkesbury, but also with your father working in New Jersey and then later New York City? I think that what comes through the letters is they're very bright. They're um, have beautiful writing style, wonderful vocabularies. And yet the only jobs my father could get was as a hotel bellman. And that my only job my mother could get was basically a sort of a maid helper in a, in a women's shop. And uh, so it, it, there's no, there aren't many direct references to racism, but I think their station in life is, a reflection of racism. Mm -hmm. They were capable of so much more. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that their relationship worked despite being apart? I think because they both had long histories in Pennsylvania, both families had long histories in Pennsylvania. Uh, my uh, mother's, my mother's grandfather, I guess it would be, my great grandfather, Henry Jones, had escaped from a plantation in Virginia and arrived in Pennsylvania in the 1840s and started a family there. So um, there's a long history on that side. And my father's family, I found them in the um, census back to 1850 as free people. So they had that in common that uh, without having to explain a lot, I think they understood the racism that the both families experienced and my mother's side um, my grandfather's barbershop was actually burned down in, um, in the mostly white town where they lived because he had married a woman of German and Welsh descent, which the local people were not happy about and her family was not happy about. On my father's side of, a, of the family, he had a cousin whose uh, wife died of tuberculosis because no hospital would, would accept her, and he ended up so depressed that he was hospitalized for basically the remainder of his life. So they both had these kind of tragic um, stories that uh, I don't even know if they needed to tell each other those stories because the people in the community knew them and may have shared these stories with them without them even having to disclose them to each other. And Jill, did you know about this family history before, uh, again, transcribing these letters and then doing more research into your family's roots? I did not know. Um, I knew my fam the family had long roots in Pennsylvania, but I um, had heard from my mother that her, she had an ancestor that uh, came to Pennsylvania because he didn't want to be sold down the river. And I didn't quite know what that meant or didn't really connect with it until I found that my grand great-grandfather Henry's obituary that actually outlines that he was born on a plantation in Virginia 
near Winchester, Virginia, and had escaped and it outlines his escape and his, his um, life story. And that's when I, it really was very emotional reading that and understanding where I come from. As an African-American, I know, you know, we all know generally that we descend from people who were enslaved, but to have actual documentation and a record of that was very moving. So my mother didn't know those details, but she she had some sense that there was someone in the family tree who had been enslaved. At the top of the show, I mentioned Ancestry.com, which has helped so many people get interested in genealogy. But when you were doing you know, when you were doing your research, uh, tell us a little bit about how you encountered that uh, obituary and learned more about uh, your family. So it's a, um, a little bit of a detective story. Ancestry.com was available when I started researching, but it wasn't as robust as it is today. So a lot of the documents that I found, I had to write away to local historical societies to obtain. But I had um, an interesting experience when I started. The first person that I looked for was my grandmother, Mary Brooks. And when Ancestry yielded those results. Pretty easy to find the only black town, black family in Catawissa, Pennsylvania. So that that was um, came up immediately. But listed with her was her father, Henry Jones, and there was a link in Ancestry that said, "Look, you know, connect with other people looking for Henry Jones." And I clicked on that, and uh, a person, a name came up. I emailed or used Ancestry to send her a message. And sure enough, she came back and responded and we figured out we were, we were cousins. So that was a pretty easy find, which I don't know if everyone has that easy an experience. So we had a reunion. We, uh, we gathered together several cousins and we met in Catawissa and visited the cemetery where four generations of my family is buried. And I took photographs of all the headstones and use that information to uh, request any information that the local historical society had on, on my family. And they uh, sent me a thick packet of information with several obituaries and news clippings and lots of stuff. So was that the, um, was that the first time you had been to Catawissa? Actually as a, um, a young person with my family, we had gone back to Wilkes-Barre to visit, and we, um, Catawissa is probably about 30 miles away from Wilkes-Barre, and I had been there. Of course, as a 12 or 13-year-old, I was totally bored and didn't pay attention at all <laughs> to what my mother was trying to share with me. But I did remember the, the cemetery. It's a beautiful Quaker cemetery um, that... Uh, so I knew where it was when we returned with the family and I, I led the way there for everyone. Hmm. And did you learn more about uh, Pennsylvania's history when it came to uh, the Underground Railroad and the fact that even though Pennsylvania was one of the first states uh, to abolish slavery, there were still enslaved people there. Was that any of that surprising? No, not really. Um, that's kind of... Um, the history here too in Connecticut, even when, you know, there was gradual emancipation in many states, when uh, even though they freed people, it wasn't always immediate. Um, so it didn't surprise me. Mm. Um, 
I think I, I um, it was already a history buff. So I had some understanding of, of um, different events in black history and how they, things unfolded for people of African descent in this country. This sounds like an interesting journey from the time that you found those love letters in the plastic bag in your mother's room. How long did it take you from the time that you found the letters uh, to transcribing and doing the research before you were ready to, to publish this book? Well, I found the letters in 2007 and the book wasn't published until 2015. So it was, um, as I said, I, I let them sit for a few years before I did anything. And it was a step-by-step -step process of, of deciding to do a book. It wasn't, you know, one moment I, I decided to do that and, and went forward. So first I transcribed the letters, which probably took about a year. And then um, I decided to add the family history at the beginning, because I felt like the letters were light and fun and people wouldn't know the history of these two families and, and how these were people who had all of this in their memory banks as they met each other and, and began to develop their relationship. And that um, that's an ongoing process. I never really stopped. I reached a point where I felt I had enough for the book, but I've continued to do family research. My guest all... today is, oh, go ahead, Jill. No, no, go ahead. I just wanted to let, remind our listeners that I'm speaking with you, Jill Snyder, author of Dear Mary, Dear Luther, A Courtship and Letters. We're going to take a short break, but coming up, we're going to hear more about what Jill discovered. And we'll take uh, your uh, questions, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. My guest today is Jill Snyder, who wrote the book Dear Mary, Dear Luther. After transcribing the love letters her parents sent to each other in the 1930s before they married, Jill followed her mother's wishes to publish the letters. She learned a lot about her parents and her family's history in Northeast Pennsylvania. But she also hopes her book encourages other African Americans to research their family trees because black history is not a single story. Uh, Jill, when you've uh, been talking about your book over the years, uh, what has been the reaction that you received from community members who were also interested in learning about their family roots? Oh, it's always positive. People um, really want to know their history. And what I... Um, Often here, though, is that people don't know how to approach developing their family history. And, and I've heard many times that people go on Ancestry.com, print out a bunch of stuff and put it in a box. And that's as far as they get. Um, so I would um, I always encourage people to write first 
and that was natural for me because I'm a writer at heart. So when I started, uh, before I started researching, I actually wrote about 20 page document recalling uh, all the things my mother had told me about the families. And, and uh, that was the basis for then doing the family research. So I mentioned, I've mentioned uh, Northeast Pennsylvania a few times. Eventually, your parents, after they married, came to New Haven, Connecticut. Tell us about uh, what prompted them to come here. Well, it was um, 1941, and uh, World War II was, I don't think the U.S. was quite in it yet, but it was actually, you know, going on in Europe. And Winchester Factory in New Haven was a big um, arms manufacturer and thousands of Black folks were coming to New Haven to work. And, and uh, my mother actually had a distant cousin who lived in New Haven. That's how they found about the opportunities here. And they decided to move to New Haven and they, they wanted to raise a family in a small town. They, my mother had moved with my uh, father, obviously in New York City when they got married, but they felt like they wanted to raise a family in a more family friendly place. Mm. And tell us about what they experienced in New Haven with uh, so many people coming uh, to work at the Winchester um, factory, and eventually they would move to a suburb. Yes. Well, coming to New Haven at that time, New Haven was actually somewhat segregated in housing. And because so many African-Americans were coming, it was really difficult to find a a place to live. They, they had some family that they were able to stay with in the beginning, but um, they couldn't find a, what they felt was a decent place to live. And my mother, um, I didn't mention this yet, but my grandmother, uh, maternal grandmother was of Welsh and German descent. So she actually came to New Haven and found them an apartment. And then, and then they moved in. And apparently the, the landlord uh, didn't seem to care that an African-American family was moving in, but on them going to different people trying to rent, they were, they were not accepted. Mm. Did your mom ever talk about her experience living in a mixed race family? Well, I, um, I alluded to earlier the story of my grandfather's barbershop being burned down. So she remembers that as being a terrifying period in their lives. It, there was a sort of an ongoing harassment and uh, she didn't name who the people were, but she described uh, men in white hoods burning crosses on the front lawn of the family. And the interesting thing about it is my grandfather was actually fairly prosperous for 1930s depression era. He was a barber and he had a lot of private clients uh, there town they lived in was Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, which was where a lot of the mining presidents lived and where the um, banking was the banking center for the region. So I think there was both some envy that this black man was doing pretty well when so many people were suffering. Plus, you know, he was married to a white woman. And, uh, and my mother felt that her own brothers were um, instigators in some of this. But that was never proven. Mm -hmm. I mean, her grandmothers, her mother's brothers, her uncles were part of this. 
Tell me more about your parents' uh, life in, in Connecticut. So after your father no longer worked at the the firearms uh, factory, uh, where did he ended up working? And also your mom's story. And my father ended up um, working for um, a local supermarket. People in New Haven will remember a store called Schifrin's. He worked there for many years, and then he went to work for Yale. Actually, everybody in my family at some point worked at Yale. Um, and he worked um, for the campus mail department. And my mother uh, was a homemaker until I was about 16. And she went to work at Yale because my brother Roy was a uh, in the uh, HR department at Yale. So he was able to find her a part-time job. And she worked in what was um, the Wright Nuclear Structure Laboratory, which is no longer uh, exists, but it was uh, one of the leading nuclear research uh, facilities in the country at the time. And she ended up working for uh, President Taft's grandson, whose first name was Horace, Horace Taft, who she adored. And um, one of the fascinating things that I thought about as I was writing the book is she would tell me that there was a special typewriter that she used and she could send notes to people at MIT and Harvard and University of Chicago. And it dawned on me as I was working on the book that she was an early user of the internet. So my mother was a pioneer. <laughs> and I like to say she went from being a housewife to being a nuclear physicist. Mm. And I understand she even got mentioned in the researcher's dissertation for her yes. help in his work. Yes, she did. Mm. I'm very proud of that. I have, he gave her a copy and I still have that. Again, your mother passed away in 2007, uh, so she was never able to see uh, this book after it was published. What do you think she would say to you now if she were still alive about what you've been able to do? That's a great question. I think she would be very proud. My mother, my mother loved me very much. <laughs> my parents loved me very much. I think they would be very proud and awed that anybody would, would want to read them. My mother... Um, maybe not as much as my father, he would be floored. He would be so shocked. I loved uh, reading about your relationship uh, with your parents uh, and, you know, just to be able to, for you to get a lens into what they were like uh, in their courtship, that must have been a, a real gift for you. Absolutely. It, um, I see them in a whole new light. You know, I see them more, we see our parents as our parents and, sort of a one-dimensional view, but now I see them more their full humanity. And I also see, as I said earlier, that they had so many gifts and, their, and so much wisdom, intelligence, that they could have done so much more with their lives if they came along at a different time in history. So, and I, I also understand, too, um, that one of their connections might have been that their both of their mothers were kind of outcasts in their respective communities because my uh, obviously my mother's mother of German and Welsh descent marrying an African American man in 1917 be, was basically shunned by the white community after that and then my father was um, the son of an unwed mother and so he was troubled by that his whole life, never knew his, who his father was. So I, I also see how that may have 
um, help them uh, have a bond because they're of their mothers being sort of in similar situations. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Jill Snyder, author of Dear Mary, Dear Luther, A Courtship and Letters. We'll talk more about genealogy after the break and hear her advice to people interested in researching their family story. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, if you enjoy the conversations you hear daily on this show, please support it with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today on Zoom, Jill Snyder, author of Dear Mary, Dear Luther, A Courtship and Letters. She transcribed the love letters between her parents before they married in 1941. Jill, you've said that you strongly believe every black family should document its history. Can you talk about that and some of the challenges and how you were able, again, to find so much information about your family? Sure. Um... I think back to when I was in school in in New Haven, and the only thing I remember learning about African-Americans, even just a slight reference, was when the Civil War was discussed. And basically, we learned that there were people in, enslaved in the South. There was a war to free them. And in the 1900s, uh, the 20th century, a lot of people came north to New Haven and other cities. And that was, that was kind of it. And it was one story for a whole population of people. And of course I knew that um, my family story was a little bit different because they'd been free people in Pennsylvania before the civil war. And as I speak with people, uh, there are many, many different stories of African-Americans and it's as varied as people are varied and there are uh, amazing stories of um, people overcoming great odds, people succeeding in unbelievable ways. And so I think for all, you know, for all of our society, it's important that we share those stories so people see the um, variations and the uniqueness of each family rather than seeing us all as kind of this one, one uh, undescript group of people with uh, the same stories to tell. And there are a lot of people from uh, Caribbean as well with very different stories. So um, I think, I just think it's important also for us as individuals, understanding our history, who we come from is very healing. I found it to be very healing when I discovered that uh as I mentioned earlier, my ancestor Henry Jones had escaped from Plantation, Virginia. I was, I cried. I was so moved at his story that he had the courage to run away. It was in the, around 1825, 1830 in that time when he escaped, uh, that he, he went off alone, left a place he knew, found a wife and married and raised children. And it's, through the generations been a very loving and tight knit family, even still today. And so he, he's, he, I feel like he's my hero and that I'm an inheritor of his love and his courage and his resilience. So I, I believe it's important on two levels, as I said, so that historians and the, and, and the, everybody understands the, 
the wide variety of stories of African-American families. And it's important for us to tell our stories because it is healing and it really is uplifting and joyful. I wanted to bring into the conversation Nora Galvin, who's a certified genealogist based in Connecticut. Nora, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could respond to what Jill Snyder has shared and some of the tools that people can use, especially black families uh, when they want to dig into the roots, but you know, maybe because of census records or uh, certain records that are missing, um, the, the challenges and some of the tips that you can give them. Sure. Well, first, I'd like to say that I think uh, Jill's description of how she started her research uh, is tech textbook perfect. Um, we <laughs> want to start with what we know uh, and then expand on that. So so uh, the first thing I would recommend is to uh, for researchers to, to speak to family members, talk to your parents. Uh, most of us know our grandparents' names, uh, if not the people themselves, but can't go beyond that. So speak to the parents, get the grandparents' names. If your grandparents are still living, speak to them. Their grandparents are four generations away from you. They're your great greats. So get all that and then do what Jill said. She consolidated the information she had. She actually wrote it in a narrative, but uh, other people may not be comfortable with that format, but could create charts perhaps and that sort of thing. But you want to write down what you've learned and who told you it. And then the next step is to go ahead and try to verify all that information. And uh, you asked about uh, African-American records. Um, as white people, we don't think about records or lack thereof. We assume all the records are there. Uh, but for African-Americans, there was virtually nothing uh, for, written for them personally prior to 1865. And in fact, uh, a big part of uh, slavery was to actually obliterate family history and obliterate family connections. So that's a gigantic barrier for African-American research. After 1865, uh, people uh, all Americans, all people living in the United States should appear on the United States Census. So that's going to be helpful. But you want to start with the current people and move backwards so you know you're following the correct family. Uh, you also talk about uh, recording interviews uh, with older family members. You don't have to have a, a fancy recording equipment. You can just uh, do it on your smartphone, right? <laughs> Exactly, right. So if you have someone in your uh, family uh, who's the storyteller or the person who knows everything about the family, uh, sitting there trying to take notes may not be the most effective way to capture the information. So turn on a tape recorder or turn on your phone and capture it that way and you can transcribe later. You mentioned the challenges of the written record when we are looking back at African-American families, but what about the role of DNA testing? Uh, can that help fill the gaps, Nora? It absolutely can. Um, the, the DNA tests, uh, again, once you get back to 1865, you may have difficulty actually finding names. So, for example, in the what we call the slave schedule of the U.S. Census, uh, in 
Labed people are listed by age and gender and not by name. So uh, there are going to be some barriers, but you will certainly learn uh, nearer relatives by name, nearer ancestors by name, uh, and you will be able to determine how much ancestry is African versus European. There's mm -hmm. a huge movement uh, among in the African-American genealogy community to try to elucidate uh, DNA findings, and there'll be plenty of help for that online. Jill, uh, what's your reaction to that? Have you done the DNA testing? What has it told you? Was it a connection with a cousin? Was that what you said earlier? Yes, I've done DNA testing and um, discovered a couple of um, people who are cousins they actually helped solve a couple of family mysteries. As one of the stories passed down to me was that on my father's side, there were people who disappeared in the 1800s and were never heard from again, and no one knew where they went. And one day, a uh, European-appearing woman with a French last name from Canada popped up as a cousin. So I used the Ancestry message tool to ask her if she knew how we were related. And to my surprise, she answered immediately, oh, yes, my great-grandmother or great-great-grandmother was Esther Jane Snyder. And she and her husband, Peter Enty, left Pennsylvania in the 1850s because they were afraid of the Fugitive Slave Act. So I was, I was really blown away that, uh, to, to get that information. Mm -hmm. Again, uh, Jill Snyder, you've done uh, so much work uh, into your family's history, but there's so much history, especially related to black families in New Haven. Is that your next project to help uh, shine a light on that history? Yes, um, I'm um, doing some just general work on prominent people in New Haven. Uh, my next book, not sure when that'll be finished, but I want to compile stories of uh, maybe 10 or 12 people who were actually quite successful in the 1800s, even though most Black people in New Haven were impoverished. As I said, they were living in segregated areas and limited to very low-level jobs. There were some people who broke out of that and had some amazing accomplishments. So I, I would like to highlight those. Mm -hmm. Well, Jill Snyder, it was a pleasure to speak with you, and I loved reading uh, your book, Dear Mary, Dear Luther, A Courtship and Letters. And Nora Galvin, thank you for sharing uh, some uh, tips and suggestions for our listeners in researching genealogy, Nora. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about where we live. Just download it on your favorite podcast app.